Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Jonathan, as Matt said, and I'm pretty new here. So we may not have met, and I would love to meet you after the service. Uh, Our family moved here to Birmingham this summer. I grew up here, uh, but neither my wife nor my kids have lived here. So we moved here this summer, and we've been attending Red Mountain for the past uh, few months And this church has been an immense blessing to our family. And so it is my delight and joy to get to bring the word of God to us this morning. So if you would uh, turn either in your Bible or look in your bulletin to 1 Thessalonians. Uh, If you have a Bible, 1 Thessalonians in the back. And it's in the group of all the T's. And and I have to remember it by it's the length of name. Is the leg goes longest to shortest. So if you hit the T's, you know, go back a little bit. It's it's towards the front of those. Uh, but we're going to be reading from uh, two chapters in First Thessalonians, chapters four and five. And uh, the reason we're going to read from two sections is because Paul has written his letter for many reasons. But this section is is an important part of this letter that he gives to this church to the Thessalonians. And these sections are about what he describes as God's will for your life. And so we're going to read from chapter 4 where he starts talking about God's will in chapter 5. And it's, it's this beautiful passage of, God, of Paul describing what God's will is for your life. And as I thought about being here with this church this morning, thinking about the new year, there's nothing more then I think would be good for us to hear is about what God wants for you in this life. And specifically, he tells us that it's our sanctification. And so God's will for our life and our sanctification, our growth as Christians in his grace. And I, I am excited and delighted that we get to think about that and meditate on that this morning. So if you would follow along with me. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4. And then skipping ahead to chapter 5, Paul tells us, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we have told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Now we skip ahead to chapter 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. 
Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? (laughs) Heavenly Father, as we turn our attention to your word this morning, we pray that you would direct us, direct our minds and our affections to your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And as we meet you in your word, would you open our eyes that we might see the wonderful life that you offer us in Jesus through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, as I mentioned before, and maybe as you you read along with me in that passage, you noticed that this passage that we looked at begins and ends with that theme of God's will for our life. And, And Paul calls it our sanctification. So beginning in chapter 4, he describes how we ought to walk and live and please God. And then after two chapters of instructions and guidance on how we generally think and how we act and how we even feel in living out our Christian faith, Paul concludes this letter by reminding us that these things are God's will for us. And then he prays that the peace of God would sanctify us completely. And so this whole section of this letter is bookended by that theme, the theme of sanctification. And that can be a big word if you're new to the Christian faith or if you're young. Sanctification has a lot of syllables in it. Maybe you don't know what that word means. And I know also that for many people here that this is a word that you've thought a good deal about. You've thought a lot about what sanctification is. I think many times in our own particularly Presbyterian circles, we often think about how sanctification works. We like to talk about that. We like to talk about what God does and what he enables us then to do. And we talk about the the functions of how that works. And that's a, a great conversation to have. But this morning, I was wondering if we could take a different look into our sanctification into our growth as Christians. And it's not in contrast to those other ways of talking about it, but, but instead, I, I thought we'd look at it from a little bit of a different angle. And if you're, again, new to the church, or if you're young, uh, either in your faith or even in life, I hope this might be especially helpful for you. Because as I reflected on these verses, and as I reflected on God's will for our life, Here in 1 Thessalonians, I found, what I found is that Paul isn't as much giving us commands for what we are to do. He's doing that. But before he does that, Paul is inviting us into a wonderful life that Jesus offers. And so this section is more of an invitation than a command. 
So before Paul tells us how to live, he's telling us that Jesus offers you new life. More than hearing a list of commands, we get to examine that beautiful life that Jesus calls us to. And so to do that, uh, we're going to take a look at really just three verses. We're going to look at three short verses in chapter 5, verses 16, 17, and 18. And here, kind of at the culmination of this section in Thessalonians, talking about God's will, we see that Jesus invites us to do three things. Through Paul, Jesus invites us to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in all circumstances. And if you're a note taker, those are going to be our three points today. We're going to talk about rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and giving thanks in all circumstances. So first, let's look at verse 16, where Paul invites us to rejoice always. And I would say, as we look at this, one of the first things that stands out to us is that we know that the life that God calls us to, in some ways, is a life of rejoicing. This makes sense to us. Perhaps you you know this from when you first became a Christian and first experienced the joy of what Jesus had for you. Or if not, you probably saw some of this through this recent Christmas season. During Christmas, we spend a lot of time rejoicing. We rejoice that the Lord has come to us. We sang a song this morning about the joy that is proclaimed when Jesus came. We rejoice in the kingdom that he's brought, but we also rejoice in the blessings that he gives us, the blessings of family or or reflection on our last year or even the gifts that we exchange to one another. We know in some way that our Christian walk is a walk of joy and rejoicing. But I think if we're honest with with ourselves, you also feel a tension when you read verse 16. Because Paul tells us to rejoice always. And if I'm honest with you, I can tell you I don't rejoice always. And so we know that the Christian life is one that is calling us to a life of rejoicing, but we also know that we don't always rejoice. And particularly, I think, when I experience the brokenness of our world, when I see it around us and our family, or when we experience it ourselves directly, we don't always feel like rejoicing. And if I can be candid with you, uh, this past month for my wife and for me, it was a difficult month of being reminded of the brokenness of our world. We had a good friend pass away in, in tragic circumstances. We had other friends of ours confronted with similar loss of loved ones, loss of um, relationships, loss of uh, just immense um, pain and hurt in their lives. And so when we're in seasons of difficulty, it can be, frankly, difficult to rejoice. And it's not just that our circumstances around us, it's not just these things that we go through life and experience, it's not only those that hinder us from joy. I think when we take an honest look at our lives and ourselves, we also recognize that there's something inside of us that can hinder us from rejoicing, that can prevent us from rejoicing. I find myself uh, doubting God's goodness at times. 
I find myself maybe mad at him, angry at, at the way that he has allowed my life to be, or I'm grumbling or complaining in my heart, and I find that my very attitudes and the spirit inside me in certain ways is, feels like the opposite of rejoicing. And so we see that there are internal and external circumstances that present challenges to understanding what this verse means here in verse 16 where Paul tells us to rejoice always. And I think it leaves us in a place where when we're honest, we see this is the life that we want, but it's not always the life that we live. I want a life that always rejoices, but it's not always the life I live. So how are we to understand this tension? Well, I think one way is to look uh, first at the person who wrote this letter and to recognize that Paul, the author of this letter, understands this tension. In another letter that he wrote to the Roman church, Paul explicitly says, I don't understand my own actions. For I do, or he says, for I don't do what I want to do, but the very thing I hate is what I do. And so Paul knows about living this life where he wants a certain type of life and it finds himself not being able to live it. And so what's he doing here in 1 Thessalonians? If he knows that we live these mixed lives, why is he calling us to always rejoice? Is he just saying, hey, you know what? Stuff down all that that hard stuff and don't think about it and just put on a happy face. I think most of you know that I don't like we don't think that's what he's doing. And I also don't think he's telling us to do something impossible. I don't think he's saying, hey, do something that I've not been able to do. You guys, y'all, y'all need to do it. You know, that's not what Paul's doing. So why is he telling us to rejoice always? Well, the more that I reflected on it and that I looked at this passage, the more convinced I became that these commands and these verses are, again, they're an invitation to a better life. And here, specifically what I mean by that is I think Paul, by telling us to rejoice always, is forcing us to consider why it is that we rejoice. Again, he's not telling us to do something that he knows that no one will be able to do. So he's putting this here so we will stop and ask, why do we rejoice? And the answer to that question for Paul is always the same. Why does Paul rejoice? Why do we rejoice? We rejoice because of Jesus Christ. We rejoice because of what Jesus has done. Paul's talked about it throughout this letter, what Jesus has done for the Thessalonians. We rejoice at the kingdom that Jesus brought here on earth and that he's working out here in the church and across the globe. And we rejoice because of what Jesus has promised to do for us and for our future. And notice that, that none of this is, starts with what we do. It doesn't start with what we're doing, but it starts with what Jesus Christ has done and is doing for you and for me. And in this way, Paul is calling us away from our current and particular circumstances and pointing us to the glorious God who came to earth that we might have life and have it abundantly. So Paul's call for us to rejoice always is a call into a better life.
again, I ask, isn't this the life that you want? Don't you want a life that rejoices always? As I've considered that, I thought it'd be helpful for us to take a moment and think, think about, have you ever met a person that seems to live a life like this? Have you ever met someone who lives a life that is overwhelmingly characterized by joy? Overwhelmingly characterized by by rejoicing. I'm not talking about the one who can pick themselves up by their bootstrap and be an optimist, put on a happy face, and go forward. That can be helpful. But I'm talking about someone who just oozes joy in their life. As I thought about that question myself, um, I found that most of the people that I thought about were older saints. They were people who have known Jesus for a long, long time. And it was interesting, in our previous church, there was uh, some circumstances around COVID that that made this point super clear to me in a a really obvious way. And so during COVID, we had, uh, in the last church, we had a, a season where we had a service that was specifically dedicated for the elderly and immune compromised. And so this was a service where most of the people who were present had known Jesus for decades. And what I found is that after a few months of running several different services, that it was really obvious which service gave me the most encouragement. I loved that particular service. And I kept reflecting on it. Why is it that I love this one service? And it was because that so many of these people, so many of these older saints were just exuding joy and thanksgiving while they were there for worship. And when you think about what's going on in their lives, this isn't an obvious thing. Because this was the crowd who had the most pain, physical pain and discomfort in their life. This was the, the group of people in our church that, ha- that knew uh, without a doubt that they had the shortest time left in their life on earth. They were marked by uh, loss of family, loss of loved ones, of spouses and even children, and yet they found reasons to give thanks. Because I think these Older saints, their life with Jesus over decades had given them the ability to see the Lord Jesus Christ more clearly. And they understood what he had done for them. How he came to earth and lived the life that they couldn't live. How he offered them peace in the life that they were currently living and how he offered them a hope for the future. And so their joy wasn't tied to their circumstance. It wasn't tied to the pain that they felt. It wasn't tied to the challenges that they had. Even just waking up and getting to church sometimes, that's not where their joy was located. Their joy came from Christ. And this is the type of life that I want for myself, and I want for my family, and that I want for you. I want the type of life where joy isn't tied to what's going on around me. Praise God, Paul is showing us here that this is the type of life that Jesus Christ offers you. He offers you a type of life where you can rejoice always. 
And so how do we enter into this type of life? How do we get there? How do we become people who, like these older saints, who seem to be able to rejoice in all circumstances? Well, I think Paul continues this passage by telling us. And what he says in verse 17 is essentially one way to a life of rejoicing always is by praying without ceasing. And that's our second point this morning. And so we pray without ceasing. And when you hear that verse, you may think, well, that sounds just as impossible as rejoicing always. I can't pray without ceasing. How can I do either of these things? And I think because in the way that many of us think about prayer, it is impossible. But like before, I don't think Paul is setting before us an impossible burden. So what's he doing? What is prayer? And when we think about what it is and what it does, I think we can make some sense of it here. So first, what is prayer? When he asks us, when Paul tells us that we can pray without ceasing, what's he talking about? And so again, take a moment to, to reflect uh, rhetorically or, or in, in your head. Think about what is prayer? If someone were to ask you, what is prayer? And children especially, I encourage you guys, I'm looking at my kids too. Think about in your head, if I were to ask you, what is prayer? What do you think? Where do you go to? If you're like me, you're tempted to go immediately to, well, prayer is talking with God, right? And if you were to press me further and look at my prayer habits as well, you might find that prayer feels, well, it kind of feels one direction. It almost feels like talking to God. And specifically, it often feels like asking God for the things that we want and need. And that's a a very essential part of healthy prayer, but I don't think that's the only part that Paul is talking about here in our passage. And if that were, I think his, his command to pray without ceasing would be impossible. But recently I heard someone give a different definition of prayer, and it struck me how often I think wrongly about prayer. So rather if, if thinking of God as, or thinking of prayer as talking to God and giving him your list of things that you need, what if instead we viewed prayer as an invitation to commune with God? Prayer as an invitation to commune with God. And children, again, what I mean by that is uh, by an invitation to commune with God, I mean that prayer is an opportunity to meet with God. To be in his presence and to hear from him, to spend time with him and experience God in your life. And when we commune with God in this way, we not only talk to him, but we also get to enjoy his gifts, his grace, and his presence. We get to receive from him. And so again, Paul isn't setting an impossible command before us, but he's calling us to a beautiful life, one with direct communion with the God of eternity. And understanding this prayer changes how we think about what it does. Because it's not just a way that we list things before him, but it's a way that he changes us. God uses prayer in our communion with him to change us. And thinking about prayer this way, it actually fits better with our church's historical description of prayer. 
Here in the Presbyterian Church, we view prayer as one of the three, what we call primary means of grace. And by the phrase means of grace, we use that phrase to describe the ways that God communicates and offers his grace to us. One author describes, defines the means of grace as God's appointed instruments by which the Holy Spirit enables believers to receive Christ and the benefits of his redemption. And so along with the preaching of the word, along with taking the sacraments together, prayer is one of the primary ways that we receive Christ. How wonderful this is. And doesn't this sound more like an invitation than a command? Paul telling you, pray without ceasing. Receive the grace that Jesus offers you. That is the way to the better life. Receive the grace that Jesus offers you even through prayer. This isn't Paul telling us we just need to talk to God more. You know, we can go, that that sounds more like a New Year's resolution. You know, I'm going to pray more this year. And that's great. If you set a New Year's resolution to pray more this year, that is wonderful. And you absolutely will benefit from it. But when I set New Year's resolutions, normally they last for about, if I'm honest, I would say months, but it's really a few weeks, you know, if I'm lucky, and then we're done. And if this is a thing that you are to do, and it's reliant only on your power to do it, it will most likely eventually fade. But if you view prayer as a chance to receive the grace of God in your life, doesn't that encourage you and make you want more? It makes you want to come back to him. Prayer is more about God coming to us that we might receive from him. And when God comes to us, when he meets us with his grace, we are inevitably and unalterably changed. And this is God's will for us. This is what we talk about when we talk about sanctification. It is the formative power of the grace of Jesus Christ. God comes to us in his grace and he enables us to live the lives we have always deeply, deeply wanted. And ultimately, that type of change that God works through his grace and through prayer is the change that allows us to give thanks in all our circumstances, which is our third point and our final point this morning, that we give thanks in all circumstances. Once again, when we think about doing this, we're confronted with a life that I would say that we all want. We all want to give thanks. We all want a life where we feel like, yeah, I give thanks for everything that happens in my life. But once again, I think it's also a life that we acknowledge. It's not the life that we always live. And so when we think again about what's Paul and what's ultimately what's the Lord doing through this passage I think the Lord isn't instructing us that we have to be happy about all of the circumstances of our lives and if I can be honest having grown up in the south and being here I think this is a mistake that we very nice southerners are prone to make we are very good at looking like we're happy we're very good at, at 
when someone describes something's going on, telling them the best version of it. And that's a beautiful and wonderful trait. And it's what makes the South so warm and friendly and loving. But it also can be a, a, a hard thing for us if it gets us to the place where we think we have to cover up our actual real hurt and our pain in order to put on a happy face. And that's not what Paul is getting at here. Paul is not telling us that we have to, again, stuff down our true feelings so that we can give thanks no matter what's going on. Instead, he's reminding us that Jesus Christ offers a way through any circumstances that might come to our lives. Through Jesus Christ, when we know him, when we know what he's done for us, we know that he has entered into the darkness of our world that he has taken on our very flesh and become like us so that we might have peace with him and with God. And when we know that he has promised us an eternal future, one that is without pain and is without sin and is without death and loss, then when we see that picture, we are able to reorder how we think and view our current circumstances. And we actually, again, see an example of this kind of life in the author of this letter. We see an example in Paul's own experience. Because if you read the New Testament, one of the things that you notice is that you notice that Paul did not have an easy life. And we could spend a lot of time talking about the many ways that it was difficulty. But let me just read you one way in which he recounted himself Paul says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And yet Paul tells us, give thanks in all circumstances. How is that possible? again because Paul knows the greater reality of Jesus Christ. When he sees what Jesus has done for him, all of the things in his life are properly ordered and he sees them with the right lens. He's able to know that though they are hard and difficult and painful, they are not the ultimate things. So Paul can see past his temporary circumstances and find his security in his loving Savior. And so he's able to say, in the very same letter where he described that life, he is able to say, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And hear this, all of those things that I mentioned, I've never been stoned. I've never been lashed. I've never been shipwrecked or left adrift at sea for a day and a half. And listen to what Paul calls them. For this light and momentary affliction 
is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. No matter what affliction you face in your life, when seen in the eternal weight of glory, it will be reordered. That is the life that Jesus calls you to. He calls you to a life where you can bear the pain that he has set you in and allowed you to experience because you see the beauty of what he has done for you. This is the life that Jesus offers you. For no matter what your circumstances are, Jesus is calling you into himself and into his better life. And the beautiful part of all of this, perhaps the best part as we think about it, is that this is God's will for you. God desires for you to have the life that you want. He desires you to have a life where you can rejoice. He desires to have a life where you have communion with him, where you receive his grace. And he desires you to have a life where you can find reasons to give thanks in all circumstances. What a gracious God we serve This gracious God is calling you into that life, even this morning. A life to rejoice always as he is the source of your joy. A life where you can pray without ceasing as you share constant communion with him. And a life where you can give thanks in all circumstances as you know he is using them for your good. And one day you will be able to see them as a light and momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that he has set before you. Would we all turn to him even this morning, praying even now and asking him to give us that kind of life? And as you do, I pray that you might hear his promise to you in verses 23 and 24, that the God of peace himself will do this. This is not your work. This is the work of Jesus in you. The God of peace himself will do this. He will sanctify you completely so that your whole spirit and soul and body may be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you The one who offers you this life and calls you to it. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Would you pray with me? Lord, we give you praise that you have called us to a wonderful life. We acknowledge that it is not always the life that we feel or the life that we live in our own strength. And so we pray that you would meet us In your grace, Lord, that you would bring us into the life that is known and loved by Jesus Christ as we trust in you and receive your grace through his spirit. God, bring us into that life, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.